Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. A hundred years ago, a single event launched the modern artistic culture of Brazil, which managed to remain independent from decades of rocky politics. We ask how art today is surviving the current president's nationalism and cultural asphyxia. And when Thailand's army seized power in 2014, it vowed to clean up Bangkok's streets. In practice, that's meant evicting most street food traders. Our correspondent reckons street food is so central to the city's culture that the campaign may never be complete. First up, though. Tunisia is often referred to as the only democracy to emerge from the Arab Spring. It may not hang on to that distinction for long. For the past decade, the only real change Tunisians have seen is a conveyor belt of governments, 10 of them. The latest leader, President Kais Saied, was voted in on a landslide as a reformer, a cleanup man. But so far, all he's done is consolidate power. Last summer, he said he'd rule by decree and sent a tank to the doors of parliament. Plenty of Tunisians tolerated the move, even cheered it. The head of the executive had a grip on the legislature, with only the judiciary to check his power. And last weekend, that fell too. On Sunday, the Tunisian president moved against the country's third and final branch of government. Greg Karlstrom is a Middle East correspondent for The Economist. He had already suspended parliament last summer along with much of the constitution. Uh, he'd moved Tunisia towards being more of a strong presidential system. Now he's set his sights on the country's judiciary. He issued a decree that dissolved what's called the Supreme Judicial Council and replaced it with what he says is a temporary alternative. He's arrogated some new powers, including the right to block judicial nominees and to remove judges for misconduct. And though he says this replacement is meant to be a temporary alternative, he's provided no end date for when it will be dissolved. And this is a familiar story. This is more or less what happened with his emergency powers he took last year. I mean, how is this going down with Tunisians? There's been a little dissent, but emphasis on the word little there. There was a protest on Sunday after he issued his decree that drew a couple of thousand people. There was a two-day strike by judges last week. Of course, the judiciary has been quite critical of this and has accused him of eroding judicial independence in Tunisia. But all of this has been quite small. It's been more than a decade since the revolution now. Tunisia has a history of protest by now. Whenever the government announces tax hikes or wage freezes, they cause nationwide demonstrations. There were mass protests in 2017 against a proposed amnesty law with supporters of the old regime. What we've seen, not only in response to this decree, but in response to all of President Saeed's moves since July, has been very muted. We've seen small protests, we've seen some scattered criticism, 
but nothing like the unrest that we've seen in the past in Tunisia. And why is that? Why, why isn't there more dissent? I would say there are two parts to that answer. The first has to do with the country's political elite, which is just incredibly divided and has been so for many years. You have, for example, Islamists who have come in for the bulk of the president's criticism over the past six or seven months. He's detained key members of Islamist parties, blamed them for many of the country's post-revolutionary woes. They're, of course, opposed to his actions, but they're not finding much support from secular parties that are opposed to Islamists for ideological reasons, that are quite happy to see Islamists take the blame for everything that's gone wrong in Tunisia because it absolves them of some responsibility. So there's no common cause amongst political parties. Same thing with civil society actors like the country's main trade union. It is quite internally divided about how to respond to the president's actions. And so at an elite level, there's no unified front. And then the public, for the most part, still seems pretty supportive. They're not turning out to protest. We've seen in polls, which admittedly can be unreliable in Tunisia, but the president's still polling well. He's at 67% support in January, according to one recent survey. It's a 15% drop from last summer, but would still make many politicians envious. So you have a divided elite, a public that for the most part is ambivalent or supportive about the president's actions. None of this lends itself to any sort of organized opposition. And last time we spoke, when he suspended the constitution, the question was, is he dismantling democracy and, and building an autocracy? I mean, it kind of looks now more like he is. It does. I mean, there's the question of what the president intends to do, and then there's the question of what he's actually doing. On the former question, I think no one really knows. I mean, I was in Tunisia a few weeks ago, and everyone that I asked, what is the president's desired end state? What is he trying to do here? No one really had an answer. This is a guy who was elected in 2019 on a protest vote. He promised to clean up the political system. We know he has very particular views on governance and democracy. He favors a strong presidency. He favors indirect elections for parliament. Certainly that's informing his actions, but exactly what he's trying to do is a bit of a mystery and he doesn't offer much clarity. His speeches tend to be quite Delphic. So that leaves us to judge him by what he's doing. And he seems to be systematically chipping away at the country's post-2011 democratic institutions. So can we call it a coup? That's a word that many Tunisians are starting to use. Political parties are using it, even ones that were somewhat supportive of him last summer. Again, you look at polls and now a majority of people do say that what he's doing constitutes a coup. And so whatever it is he has in his mind, whatever his, his desired goal is here, I think the actions that he's taken and the way they're perceived by many Tunisians, it certainly seems to be a coup. And what is there left in the, the institutions that are still sort of in play here that can stop this slide, do you think? I think to go back to this elite public dichotomy, it seems increasingly that institutions or political factions are not going to stop this drift. They have been divided for many years. Tunisian parties have been fighting tooth and nail for the past decade. And despite what looks like a genuine threat to the country's democracy, it doesn't seem like they're going to put aside their differences and find common cause. And so uh, you couple that with the current level of public support, and it seems like things will lurch along for a while. I think what's likely to change that will be the economy. It won't be anything that happens in the political realm. It'll be the economy which is the main concern for most Tunisians. They're not so worried about the institutional arrangements of their democracy. They're concerned about their standard of living. This is a country where unemployment is running about 18%. Inflation is high. It's probably going to get higher this year. The state's finances are in very bad shape. It seems quite possible that in the next year or so, there's going to be a deterioration in the economy, an economic crisis that may perhaps drive people into the streets in Tunisia and cause the kind of mass unrest that we haven't seen since summer. 
Uh, and I think if anything is going to jolt the political system out of its current drift, it's likely to be that. And we've spoken about this before. Tunisia's had 10 governments in 10 years. Why is it so hard for democracy to really take root there? The first part of the answer is it's hard for democracy to take root anywhere. People in Tunisia often point out that the French Revolution wasn't exactly linear and there were periods of backsliding. And it's very difficult to have a democracy take hold in any country. But I think what's unique about the Tunisian case, in many ways, it is the economy. The idea that for most Tunisians, this is their chief concern. This is what they wanted a democratic government to deliver. They wanted jobs. They wanted a better quality of life. Many people wanted this government to deliver economic reform for a variety of reasons it hasn't been able to. And I think that's also the big risk now for this president who doesn't have an economic background, who doesn't seem particularly interested in economic policy. Uh, he came in, promised to clean up the political system and get things moving, but he hasn't done anything yet that's actually improved the quality of life for most Tunisians. And if he doesn't work on that and doesn't make some changes on that front soon, I think he could find very quickly that he starts to lose support as well. Thanks very much for your time, Greg. Thank you. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. years ago this week, a group of young Brazilian artists and writers organized what they called the Modern Art Week in the Municipal Theatre in Sao Paulo. In fact, it only lasted for three evenings, but it's since been recognized as the founding moment of Brazilian artistic culture, a culture that's now under assault by Brazil's president, Jair Bolsonaro. The Modern Art Week included art shows of expressionist paintings, lectures really directed at exalting the future of industrialization and poetry recitals. It was not by chance that it took place in Sao Paulo, and whereas Rio de Janeiro was the capital of Brazil, Sao Paulo was a sort of rapidly industrializing city on the internal frontier, and it was a kind of blank slate and open to experimentation. Mike Reed writes Bayo, our column on Latin American affairs. It was slightly contradictory that these would-be cultural revolutionaries were the scions of the coffee aristocracy in Sao Paulo. The, they were dandies, essentially. But they were also disruptors, and that was important. Why was that important, though? What were they disrupting? Well, the Modern Art Week came to be seen as a kind of declaration of Brazilian artistic independence, that Brazilian art did not have to be a kind of poor copy of European models. And that impulse was formalised 
by one of those who took part, a poet called Oswald de Andrade, who a few years later published what he called the Manifesto Antropofagico, or Cannibal Manifesto, in which he tried to address the dilemma of how to be a Brazilian modern artist when modernism was a European import. And he came up with the following answer. Absorption of the sacred enemy to transform him into a totem. Well, what that meant was that Brazilians would not simply reproduce other models, but they would absorb them, digest them, and regurgitate them as something that was their own. So tell me about some of the the artists that emerged from this. Yes. One of the people who was very closely associated with the group was Tarsila do Amaral, who would become Brazil's most original and probably best-known painter. She mixed Cubism and Surrealism with Brazilian myths and colours and landscapes. But that applied in other branches of the arts as well, as this tradition gathered force over the following decades. And one thinks, for example, of Oscar Niemeyer, the, the, the Brazilian architect responsible for the palaces of Brasilia and so on, who took Le Corbusier's functional rectangles and added very Brazilian curves. Okay, you've talked about painting, you've talked about architecture. There must also be a a musical element to this. What did Cannibal Manifesto music sound like? Well, the third evening of the Modern Art Week was devoted to a concert of the music of Hector Villalobos, who would go on to become Brazil's most important classical composer. He as a young man, had jammed with black musicians in in Rio, and he incorporated European classical traditions, Spanish guitar music, for example, in his work. But perhaps the full flowering of the the cannibal approach came in the 1950s and, and 1960s with the emergence of bossa nova, which means new style in Portuguese. It mixed samba rhythms with jazz arrangements. And was this very sophisticated music? With its kind of whispery, almost spoken singing style, and it conquered the world. And then from the mid-60s, the musical tradition evolved again and you had what was called the Tropicalia movement associated with Caetano Veloso and Gilberto Gil who took British pop music and Brazilian traditions and turned it into a very sophisticated uh, protest music against the military dictatorship which had taken power in 1964 and was to hold power for the next two decades. Well, what was the relationship then between that dictatorship and and all this artistic flourishing? Was was it effectively opposition art? Was it sort of subsumed into the dictatorship? Was it messier than all that? Well, across Latin America, authoritarian governments which emerged in the 1930s, be they of the right or of the left, identified in the modernist cultural manifestations an element of nationalism which they sought to co-opt and use. And that applied in Brazil as well. But in Brazil, 
more so than in some, some other parts of the region, I think the cultural tradition remained alive and independent. But certainly there's been some commentary around the centenary of the modern art week that it became a fetish, a cultural fetish in Brazil as a result of the military dictatorship's adoption of the 50th anniversary as a milestone in nationalist culture. And and now, 50 years on, you have Brazil ruled by another nationalist. Where is the modern art movement now? Well, the artistic world in Brazil feels that it's suffering from what one person described to me as cultural asphyxia from the government of Jair Bolsonaro. According to one gallery director in Sao Paulo, his culture secretariat is trying to impose what she called, quote, a conservative religious reductionist vision of culture. Uh, The government has cut the tax break available for private sponsorship of the arts, which has hit budget hard. And it has also tried to direct public funding only to museums or other cultural spaces that do not require people to be vaccinated to enter. But I think if one looks at the bigger picture on the centenary of the modern art movement, while that is going on in Brazil, Brazilian painting, Brazilian art, Brazilian music has become firmly part of the global mainstream in in recent decades. And that is probably the best tribute to those pioneers of the modern art week that there could be. Mike, thanks very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Walk through Bangkok streets and you'll quickly notice that they are crowded with food stall vendors selling everything from the supremely delicious to the perhaps unexpected things like snails, fermented fish, cured buffalo skin. Charlie McCann is The Economist's Southeast Asia correspondent. You can, in fact, find these particular delights in just one stall owned by a woman called Wani Junrut. Wani is a Thai woman in her 60s who has been working at this market in central Bangkok for a very long time. She's been here for 28 years. Hawking is just something the family has done for a very long time. Her mother did it before her. Her children are also in the trade. And, you know, this is something that a lot of Bangkokians do. They, they share this livelihood, right? So tens of thousands of hawkers ply their trade in Bangkok, selling everything from food, of course, but also cleaning products and clothes. The thing is, all of these people might need to find other work pretty soon. That's because the local government is threatening to evict them. Why? When the Thai army seized power in 2014, it promised to, as it put it, bring order to the streets. And by that, it meant clearing them of protesters and clearing them of street food vendors. Its allies in the local government basically see vendors as dirty, chaotic, messy. They obstruct traffic. 
They're not very hygienic. And so in 2014, the local government began evicting hawkers, regardless of whether they were licensed or not. It now claims to have closed nearly three quarters of informal markets and thrown out about 12,000 vendors. That would be nearly 60% of the total. And so what about the government's assertion that they're dirty, they're a nuisance, they're unhygienic? You know, it may have a point. A lot of Bangkokians are very frustrated with street food vendors. They argue that these hawkers pose a health and safety issue. They take up large stretches of sidewalk, forcing pedestrians onto the streets, which, as anyone who's been to Bangkok knows, are pretty dangerous. They argue the vendors don't clean up after themselves. They pour oil down the drains, leading to clogged sewers. Vendors dispute these points. And they also argue that what the government is really trying to do is scrub the streets of poverty. And of course, that brings me back to Miss Wani. Two years ago, she and about 70 other vendors at her market received an eviction notice. And they have basically lived in fear ever since that the authorities are coming to throw them out. It's not just the vendors who lose out. Tourists, of course, love street food. And if it disappears, Bangkok's appeal as a destination may fade. More importantly, a lot of ordinary Bangkokians rely on street food just for their breakfast, lunch and dinner. The city's residents get nearly half of their weekly meals from street vendors. And so in the end, do you think the government will be able to get rid of street vendors altogether? I think it will be very difficult for the government to eradicate street food vending from the city entirely. It's taken them eight years to get rid of 60% of the food vendors. And it's also just a hard task getting rid of these people entirely from the city, right? It's kind of like a game of whack-a-mole. As soon as you throw out the vendors from one area, they start to return to other areas when you're not looking. So even though the government may never be able to rid the city of all its street food vendors, it is certainly becoming more difficult to find this food in the center of the city. And that is a shame because street food is a way of life in Bangkok. It is part and parcel of the city's very identity. Charlie, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review, and see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.